0: classes out to Sunday school, you can follow Sharon and uh, enjoy a good time. And thank you to you for the musicians for playing this morning. Just reading those words of that the last verse there, or the yeah, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That's hope, isn't it? Nothing. No scheme of any man that ever was born can take me out of Christ's hand. No power of hell can take me out of Christ's hand. What a great hope we have in the gospel. Take your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of Acts again. Acts in chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse number 25 down to verse number 34, Acts 16 and beginning at verse number 25. The word of God says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray just again quickly. Loving Father, again, we come before you. We continue, Lord. And we ask, oh God, as we would now open and expound the word of God, that the spirit of God would speak to every single one of us, to those who need to hear this message and believe and be saved. Father, we pray that the spirit of God would work on their heart to open their eyes, their understanding, to believe the gospel. For those of us, Lord, who have walked for many years with the Lord, Father, we pray that hearing again the message of the gospel would be a great joy and a great refreshment to our souls. And we ask you these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. For the sake of those who are visiting today or for those who have been away for a few weeks, we're in Acts chapter 16 and we've seen how God has sovereignly guided Paul and Silas and Timothy from the southeast corner of Pamphylia around Asia, past Mysia, to the port city of Troas, where likely it is that Luke joined them. And there God called them over to Macedonia to preach the gospel. God led them to Philippi to meet Lydia at the place of prayer. And God opened her heart to respond to the gospel that Paul shared and to see her saved and her household and to see them all baptized. And shortly after that, we see the interaction of the demon-possessed slave girl and Paul as he... In the power of Jesus' name, commands the demons out of her, and God drives out that demon. Paul is dragged into the marketplace by the slave girl's owners. And the misleading charges against Paul stir the crowd into a fervor, and so the magistrates order them to be stripped and beaten and thrown in jail. And there these two men, fastened into the stocks, and despite their pain, they pray and sing praises to God as the other prisoners listen, and God intervenes. He brings an earthquake, he opens doors, he loosens chains, he rouses the jailer from sleep, and we'll pick up the story from there in a few moments. All that's happening is part of God's working to, to do, among other things, set the jailer free from his prison, to bring him to salvation through believing in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, why do we need to hear this message from this text this morning? And I want to give you four reasons. Number one, to understand the place and value of suffering in the gospel witness, secondly, to be reminded of our first responsibility in preaching the gospel. Second, or Thirdly, sorry, to understand God's vindication of sufferers for the gospel. And fourthly, most importantly, to see what God's salvation really is. And for the first three points, we're going to move pretty quickly through them. I want to spend most of my time focusing on the last, the fourth point. The simplest yet most profound question any person can ask is that one. What must I do? To be saved. And the greatest answer ever given to a question is the one that Paul gives believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But first of all, let's notice that Christ's sufferings are displayed as God brings salvation through his servant's suffering for Christ and the gospel. Notice again, verses 22 to 24, the Bible says the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore the robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They suffered false accusation. They were sentenced without defense or hearing. They were disrobed, beaten, jailed, and further suffered having their feet fastened into the stocks. But why did God allow this? Does God have a purpose in it? Why couldn't the Lord have brought Paul and Silas into contact with the jailer for him to hear the gospel without all this unjust, severe, painful suffering on the part of Paul and Silas? And there is an answer. Listen, for every believer who suffers for Christ and the gospel's sake, there is a reason behind it. God has a purpose in the sufferings that you endure in presenting the gospel message. The suffering for the Christ, for Christ and the gospel displays what following Christ truly means. Paul wrote a very interesting and a lot of difficulty to understand in one verse in Colossians 1 verse 24. This is what he wrote. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Yeah. Someone went, whoa, that's an odd one, isn't it? What does he mean? Well, one thing we can say for absolute certainty, Paul does not mean that Christ's sufferings and death were insufficient to accomplish our salvation. What did Jesus say? It is finished, absolutely complete and sufficient. He does not mean that Paul, by his suffering, supplies what was still needed for our salvation. By no means, absolutely not. That's not what it means. Christ's suffering and death were absolutely sufficient to pay for our salvation. So what does he mean? He wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? Paul and Silas and countless millions besides them received the hatred of the world aimed at Christ. The Philippians beat them because they were preaching a way of life that is unacceptable to Romans. They were preaching the gospel. Paul and Silas rejoiced in their physical sufferings for the church because the sufferings associated with the gospel were being portrayed to those those now hearing the gospel. They watched them, heard them preach, and then they saw them getting beaten for it. They associated the two together. So listen, Christ suffered on our behalf, the just for the unjust. The call for us to believe the gospel came to us through other people's sufferings. The call to us to follow Christ is a call to suffer with Christ. That's a tough message. That's a message this world and a vast majority of the Christian churches don't want to preach. It's far easier to preach come to Jesus and your life will be all so wonderful. You'll, you'll never struggle again. It's not the gospel. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that to, that to follow Christ is a call to suffer with him. It's a call to share and fellowship in Christ's sufferings. As Paul talks about in Philippians 3 verse 10. Just as Paul didn't count Countless millions of missionaries and evangelists and pastors and preachers have since then suffered. Believing in Christ and the gospel will result in our, in your sufferings. Especially in the world in which we live today. But there's also a tremendous gracious blessing of God for us in this. Paul rejoiced that he is a suffering servant of his Lord by suffering for Christ Paul is becoming like his suffering Lord Jesus. Jesus himself told us in Matthew 10, verse 25, It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? In other words, just as Jesus was cursed and slandered and beaten and tortured and put to death, so those things we can expect as his disciples, his followers. And Paul's suffering, Paul and Silas's suffering, displayed that suffering that's associated with the gospel to those who were hearing it for the first time. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a question for us. Are we willing to endure the afflictions associated with Christ and the gospel in order to witness for the gospel? And that's a tough question to ask. But the scriptures demand that we ask it and consider a response. Are we willing to come to follow Christ, to pick up our cross, not merely as a nice piece of symbolic jewelry, but as a response to the very real call to suffer for Christ? So God brings salvation as his servants suffer for Christ and the gospel. Don't, make, don't mistake, those servants don't contribute to the gospel. They don't contribute to salvation, but they display the sufferings of Christ as they present the gospel. Notice, secondly, that Christ's word is preached. God brings salvation through the preaching of the word of God. In Acts 16 and verse 14, Paul spoke the word to Lydia beside the river. In verses 20 and 21, the charges the slave owners brought against Paul and Silas proved that Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel despite the demon's harassment. In verses 30 and 31, Paul spoke the word of the Lord in the jail to the jailer and to all his house. The gospel was being preached. So one simple point that you all know well, but it's certainly worth the repeating. It was not the miracles that Paul did that convinced the jailer. It was then, it is now, and it always will be by the communicating of the gospel that men and women are saved by God and that faith comes. There simply is no substitute for speaking the gospel message. Whatever other activities we get involved in here at Noble Park Baptist Church, glorifying and worshiping God through the preaching of the gospel in this pulpit and out in those streets is of the highest importance For all of us, God brings salvation through gospel preaching of His suffering servants. Notice, thirdly, Christ's servants were proven right, they were vindicated. God brings salvation and proves His suffering servants to be right. Notice the text. In verse 18, God vindicated his servant's word through the demon being cast out in the power of Christ's name. Back in the Lydia story, God vindicated their message as she was saved and changed and baptized and her whole household as well. and Her whole life changed as a result of the gospel. In verses 25 and 26, as Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God with the prisoners listening, God brought an unusual earthquake. It Vindicated what they were doing. Notice how the text describes the effects of the earthquake? It shook the prison foundations. Yet, the prison itself, the upper part, the superstructure, didn't collapse. If you've watched any pictures, uh, I remember as a little kid watching a, a black and white movie footage of an uh, earthquake in New Zealand and all the buildings that collapsed and crumbled. I flew over uh, Los Angeles back in 19. 19- Oh, goodness, 1989, I think it was. It was a great big earthquake down there around that time. And you could see the fault line all the way along, and you could see these these beautiful big highways and roads and buildings, and they were just like crack, crack, crack on top of each other. The whole thing had collapsed. But here in this earthquake, the foundations were shaken, but the upper structure stayed completely intact. In fact, next morning, they go back into the prison, and they're sitting there waiting for the magistrates to come and get them out. That's no ordinary earthquake. Not only that, and the earthquake opened all the doors and loosened all their chains. Or I should say, God opened all the doors and loosened all their chains. In my mind's eye, when I first read that, I'd picture the broken doors kind of hanging off their hinges and the chains all snapped and broken. But that's not what the text says. It simply says the doors were opened, the chains were loosened, and all the prisons were freed. God brought a miraculous earthquake, and through that earthquake testify to his presence and his power. He proved Paul and Silas to be his servants and slaves. But there's more. In verses 35 to 40, we see the greatly humbled magistrates coming to the prison to escort Paul and Silas out with an apology, knowing full well they're in grave danger of being prosecuted under Roman law for beating and imprisoning Roman citizens without a hearing, God wonderfully displayed his power and his presence, and he proved Paul and Silas' words and message to be true. And here's the point for all of us. There is one. God proves his servants right in the old days, in the Old Testament times, in the Bible times. He did it through miracles. For example, in Moses' life, his words were vindicated before Pharaoh with miracles. Elijah and Elisha's words were vindicated with miracles. Jesus himself was attested to by God with miracles, signs, and wonders, proving his person and words to be true. Paul and the apostles' message and preaching was vindicated by God for a time with miracles, wonders, and signs. And God occasionally vindicates his servants today through miracles, especially in places where a completed Bible does not yet exist. It happens. It's not very often, but it does. And God still proves our gospel message to be true. How is that? Through miraculous, God-wrought, changed lives of those who truly believe, who are filled with his Holy Spirit, who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, who endure to the end despite persecution and rejection and suffering and slander and abuse by enemies. And just off the top of my head, I was trying to think of an example when I was writing this yesterday. George Mueller just came to mind. If any of you know the story of George Mueller, he was a self-confessed liar, a gambler and a thief. He was in jail with a Bible. His father had left him in jail because of unpaid debts that he had amassed through his gambling. And he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed. And this man went from being a gambler and a thief and a liar and all of that to being a tremendous missionary praying millions of pounds into orphanages that he established back in 19th century England radically changed life. The gospel was proved to be absolutely true through his life. So God brings salvation through suffering servants whose words and message he proves to be true through miracles and changed lives. And we can see it in this jailer's life. Everything changes from him as he meets Christ. And fourthly, the most important point in this text, because I think this is where God's glory is most seen in the whole text. Christ's sheep are saved. It's God's work to save his sheep. Notice again the text in verses 25 to 31. Let's just read verses 30 and 31. He says, he brings them out, that's the jailer, and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This sleeping jailer is woken by a sudden violent earthquake seeing the doors opened and the chains loosened and assuming that the prisoners are all gone, that his life is over since Roman law stated that a guard who allowed a prisoner to escape would bear the escapee's punishment in his place. And so drawing his sword, he intends to take his own life because that would be a far quicker and far cleaner death than what he would face if he didn't. But Paul. However, he came to know what the jailer was about to do. Maybe he heard the as the scabbard and the sword scraped together. Maybe he saw him in the moonlight. We don't know how he knew. Maybe God in that moment gave him an understanding. And he shouts with a really loud voice, Do not do even one act of harm to yourself. And this man, is you can imagine, his mind is just whirling with all that's going on. And the Bible says, trembling with fear, rushing in and falling at Paul's feet, he brings them out and asks them the greatest question that all men should ask. Sir, what must I do to be saved? What brought him to ask it? What did he mean by that question? And I'm convinced that he knew he needed to be spiritually saved. He was under conviction of sin. You say, how? I don't know exactly what brought him to it, yet... If we think about it, going from sleeping, sound asleep, to being shaken awake by the earthquake, to seeing the doors open, the loosened chains, to assuming that all the prisoners have escaped, and his life and happiness have gone with them, and deciding to take his own life. And then, the shocking realization that he did not need to take his own life because of Paul's words. He was, I'm sure, in that moment... Confronted with his own mortality, the shortness of life, the reality of judgment. And I believe in that moment, God brought conviction of sin and the need to be saved to this man's soul. You say, how do you know that? Well, it's very simple. He asks the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew he was lost. He knew he needed to be saved. He knew they had the answer. And so he asked the question i got to stop a second and say, my friend, have you asked that question? Has that question ever crossed your mind and your heart and your lips? Have you ever come to the point where you know that your situation is as desperate as possible and you need to be saved? Now, some of you might say, I don't even know what you're talking about. Why do I need to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from Who? We all need to be saved because we are all in constant danger of imminent calamity. You say, what calamity? Come on, man, we're in a room. It's warm, probably a little too warm. It's comfortable. Everything's fine. I've got a job. I've got a house. I've got friends. I've got family. I've got food. Everything's great. What do you mean, imminent calamity? What are you talking about? God's judgment against all sinners. That's What calamity I'm talking about. We have all sinned against God in thought and word and deed. To sin is to disobey God's law written on our heart, our conscience. We were born in sin, we live in sin, and without salvation we'll die in our sin to face God's judgment against us for our sin. That's the danger you're in. Every lie we tell, every theft we commit, every lustful look at another man's wife or husband, Drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality of any and every kind, they all bring us underneath the death penalty by God's law. I could take hours to lift off as many sins as I possibly could of all those, but I'll just summarize them with two. Every failure to love and glorify God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is sin, and it brings the death penalty. Every failure to love our neighbors as as ourselves is sin, which brings the death penalty. And every other sin falls under one of those two categories. And having defied God by acting against our conscience in His Word, God is furiously angry with us. Don't ever mistake that. God is not impartial or indifferent, God is not careless about your sin. He is furiously angry. Sin breaks God's law. It is rebellion against him. Sin crosses God's boundaries. It's a transgression. Sin is the failure to achieve God's holy standard. It's iniquity. Sin greatly offends God. Now there's a words that ought to strike fear in every heart. My sin offends God. God is going to judge every human being ever born for their sin. God's judgment against sinners is to consign them to hell forever. What does it mean to be in hell? To be in hell is to be in the presence of the almighty, all-knowing, most holy God, but absolutely separated from him. Our Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment will say, depart from me, I never knew you. For those in hell, they'll be in God's presence, absolutely, but cut off from the experience of his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and his compassion. They'll never again experience God's common grace that all living mankind now experience, the sun shining, the rain falling, God sustaining of all his creation. To be in hell is to be in the presence of God who is love, who is love overflowing in mercy and who is abundant in grace, but unable forevermore to know or experience that love, mercy, or grace as the most devastating hopelessness any person can ever know. And the occupants of hell will know it for eternity. That doesn't cause you to stop and just gasp. In God's presence but suffering the unrestrained unending, unending anger of God against you for your sin that's why we need to be saved and why you need to be saved so then what does salvation mean in a general sense salvation is to be rescued from an imminent calamity like i said a staggering fighter in the ring he's going down he's been hit so many times he's starting his vision is going and he starts to stumble and fall to the mat And the ding, 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 the bell goes. And his trainer jumps into the ring and catches him before he falls. And we say he was saved by the bell, right? A drowning man is going down for the third time. And and the Coast Guard arrives just in time. And they throw the life preserver to him. And he hooks onto it. And he's pulled up out of the water. He's saved by the Coast Guard. The jailer pulled out his sword. He's about to give himself the death blow. And he's saved by Paul's words from suicide. But in a spiritual sense, it's to be saved from a far greater calamity. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 and Romans 2 verses 5 and 6 tell us that salvation is by Jesus Christ from God's wrath which is to come. In Romans 6 verses 1 to 11, they tell us that salvation is from sin, its penalty, its power, its pollution, and its presence. Luke chapter 1 verses 68 to 71 and Colossians 1 verse 13 tell us that salvation is from our enemies, from the devil's influence. And in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5 and Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, the Bible tells us that salvation is from judgment and condemnation in hell. So how is it possible that we can be saved? God in grace. Oh, What's that old hymn say? Oh, the love of God that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. That's exactly it. God in grace sent Jesus Christ to save us from his wrath. God, under no compulsion, no outside force acting upon him, decided in eternity past that his son should save us. The Son agreed to come, to live, to die, and to rise again to save us. The Spirit agreed to come and apply that salvation to each of us. Christ entered his own creation to live as truly man and truly God, to live in an unceasing, absolute perfection of obedience and righteousness, even to death on the cross. He lived in the perfection of righteous obedience to his father in obscurity in Nazareth and his public ministry. His righteousness had to be lived out and displayed for all to see so it could be applied to those who believe in him. God in infinite, immeasurable grace sent Christ to save us, to save you. By God's grace, he saved us by taking our place. By enduring and exhausting God's righteous judgment against us for our sin. His suffering and death turned away God's anger. On the cross, Christ died to sin. And we who are in Christ have died to sin with him. In his life and on the cross, Christ met all the demands of the law. He exhausted and met all of them. Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness, which is Satan's domain. And Christ's blood was shed for us for three reasons. The the shedding of Christ's blood was for the cleansing of our conscience. When I stand before God, my conscience will have nothing to say because it's washed clean. Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins in Hebrews 9.22. And Christ's blood was shed to bring us to God in Ephesians 2.13. Christ died for our sins and trespasses in Romans 4.25. And he was raised again for our justification. So we could be declared right. So Christ's righteousness could be applied to us. What kind of love? Love beyond human comprehension did that. What kind of grace? Amazing grace. Wonderful grace. Grace greater than all my sin did that. Why would God do such an amazing thing? I just said it. It was love, great love. It was great mercy, God's goodness to the utterly miserable. It was great grace, God's goodness to the utterly undeserving. So to answer the jailer's question, what must I do to be saved? Paul's answer to him and to all of us is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So what does it mean to believe? What do those words mean? Belief, number one, requires knowing those truths. To grasp them as best you can. Our sin, God's judgment, God's grace to save, Jesus living, dying, rising again. The basic facts of the gospel. We need to know them. Belief requires agreeing and submitting to those truths. All mankind know there is a God. You say, no, lots of people don't know there's a God. No, all mankind know. You know how we know that? The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms. In Romans 1.19, Paul says that God made it evident to them. Many know the truth of Christ's life and death for salvation. Many know what the gospel demands of faith and repentance. But sadly, so many refuse to agree with those truths, despite the pleas and cries of their own conscience and the inherent fear of death that we all have. But then there are others, sadly, who know the truths of Christianity as cold, hard, propositional, theological facts. And because they know them and can explain them and perhaps even preach them, they draw the conclusion that they're saved. No, they're not. It would be 10,000 times better to be the illiterate man who couldn't read a word but heard the message, agreed with it, and believed and trusted in Christ fully to save him. Than to be the learned man who knows and understands a great deal of theological truths of Christianity. But never truly trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. So thirdly, believing is to trust fully in Christ alone for salvation. It's to rest your entire life and all your eternity solely on Christ. It's to trust God that he is able to keep your promises. Notice what Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe is a command. We believe and we will be saved. That's a promise that we're trusting God to keep. What's our only hope of salvation? Christ alone, right? That's what the song says. What's our only plea with God? I believe in Jesus Christ. He died for me. When you and I stand before God... And if he actually asks us a question, why should I let you in? I've got two-word answer. Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only hope I have. He died for me. That's my hope. Doesn't give him a rip how many sermons i preached, how many years in ministry, all that other stuff. All the bits and pieces of th- things that we, we think we do will somehow build us favor with God when we stand before God. It's one thing alone. Jesus died For me that's it and I'm here with him in that sense it's faith in Christ faith that's evidenced by obedience and repentance the command to believe is a command to be obeyed the command requires us to submit to God's authority to trust and believe Say so yes, but, but what does believing in Christ look like? I mean, we say that all the time. I believe. Do you believe? I believe. What kind of belief do you have? We talk about beliefs all the time. What does it mean? What's it look like to believe in Christ? Sitting in a primitive Methodist church on a Sunday morning, young Charlie heard. An uneducated farmer who got up and read one verse of scripture, Isaiah 45 and verse 22. And he repeated that verse, emphasizing each word in turn. Eventually he turned and pointed down to young Charlie Spurgeons and told him, literally shouted at him in the church. There's like 10 people there. You young man. And this is the verse he read. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. The same verse in the NASB reads, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So if I combine those words, look and turn and believe, that is the message for us today, my friends. Turn to Christ, look to him, believe in him, and you will be saved. Believe that promise. Oh, brother and sister, listen, this is not just for the unbeliever. It's for us too. And my prayer for all of us, believer and unbeliever, is that we will all turn this morning and look and see Christ and renew our faith in him and our love for him, for he is God and there is indeed none other like him. My dear friends, sitting here in this congregation of the Lord's people, you who have never truly believed, this message is for you. Turn today. Look and see Christ. Believe in Him. Throw your life and your eternity on Him, for He is God, and there is indeed no one like Him. He's the only option you have. Look and see Christ. See him as he walks the deserted places in constant prayerful communion with his Father. See him at the end of 40 days in the wilderness, enduring every temptation of the devil and yet without sin. See him as he heals diseases and casts out demons and cleanses lepers, forgiving sinners and comforting the hurting and the lonely. See the love of Christ in his life lived amongst us. See him as he sits at the table with his disciples and breaking bread with a broken heart that one had agreed to betray him. See the love and the grace and the mercy. See him as he gets up from the table and takes off his outer robe and wraps himself in a towel and begins to wash their feet, including Judas's feet. See the love and the grace and the mercy of our God. See him as he falls on his face in the garden of Gethsemane and listen as he pleads with his heavenly father that this cup might pass from him. Nevertheless, with equal determination, he prays not his own will, but the father's be done. See him, beloved. As he silently endures the false witnesses raised against him. As he endures the horror of a Roman scourge without mercy. See him as he endures the nails driven through his hands and his feet. See him. Look and see Christ. As he without the comfort of the sun's light endures the infinitely worse weight of all God's righteous anger against you and me for our sin. He for those three hours... In the very presence of God and yet abandoned as he cried out, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Look. Look and see. Lift your eyes up to the cross and see Jesus. See the one who died for you. Turn and look and see as he dies. The righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless son of God dying for the sinful sons of daughters, sons and daughters of men. But praise the Lord, doesn't end there, right? We know the great story. Look and see through the eyes of faith as the groan of the great gravestone rolls away from the tomb entrance. Look and listen as all heaven declares with a shout to all of existence. This is the son of God as he rises from the dead. Look and see as he steps from the tomb, not only raised for our justification, but raised as the assurance of God that he is returning to judge the living and the dead. What's it to believe? It's to turn. Turn away from your sin and turn toward God. It's to look with the eyes of faith to see Jesus Christ. It's to trust Him, to believe what He's told you through the gospel. It's to take God at His word, believing that He is able, He will keep His promises made to you in the Scriptures. My dear friend, sitting here, maybe watching on that camera, you feel within your heart a tug, a desire to respond if you sense that call of God deep within your own heart to come to Christ, then I plead with you. In Paul's own words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the simple, beautiful, glorious message of the gospel. What a great Savior we have. Amen? Amen. Uh, There's so much more I want to say, but there's just not the time to say it, so we'll leave it there. Would you please stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just bow in worship before you. Such a great salvation. Such a great Savior who suffered and died for us. Father, again, it just takes my breath away. To look with the eyes of faith and see my Savior. Risen from the dead. Ascended and exalted and seated at your right hand, standing at your right side. Father, we thank you and we praise you for such a salvation. Father, for the one or two or more that are standing here in this room. They've heard the message. There's a tug. There's a desire in their own hearts to respond. Father, I pray, I plea with you, O Lord, our God that the Spirit of God would give them no rest until they turn, until they believe and they know what it is to be saved. Father, we ask you for this. We plea with you, O oh God, for it in Jesus' name. And Father, now as we would take some time for us as believers in the Lord Jesus to take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice to eat the bread in memory of the Lord Jesus, who gave his body for us. To drink the little cup of juice as a reminder, as in remembrance of him whose blood was shed for us. Father, we give thanks. We ask you for your blessing, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.